Well, this is the last message in the series, Games People Play. And uh, the last few messages have been sort of centering on relationships. I want to start by saying that sometimes um, people that are overtly religious, you know, they think in terms of, well, what do relationships have anything to do with religion and God? You know, they're thinking in terms of, you know, I don't know, lighting candles, taking pilgrimages or not eating food for umpteen days. But, but relationships are the essence of real spirituality. I mean, our God, is, as we said before, is a relational being. He is love personified. And his eternal plan involves having a community of people that trust in him, in Christ completely, that love him with their hearts, that follow him fully, freely, and forever, and who will be devoted to him and to one another forever for the rest of eternity. Relationships, us learning how to love God and love one another, it is the essence. It's the core of spirituality. Let me go further. 1 Corinthians 13 says we can have all kinds of biblical knowledge and all kinds of miracles and, and that sort of thing, but if we aren't really, truly growing to be more loving beings like God, which is always relational stuff, then our spirituality is of no worth. So we're going to talk about a game today called Say Anything, and the game was created in 2008. I'm just curious. How many of you have ever played the game Say Anything? Yeah, nobody knew it in first service either. <laughs> One person back here had played it. Uh, it's essentially a game where you're given these questions like, okay, uh, what was the greatest action movie of all time? And all the participants write down, you know, what their opinion, it's just their opinion, you know, on what's the greatest action movie of all time. And then they show them on the whiteboard. And then one person who gets elected to be the judge, they just kind of arbitrarily decide which of those answers they think is right. Obviously, it's all opinion. But the game, when you think about it, it is about giving your opinion. It's being intentionally transparent, giving your opinion, but you're doing it in a very safe context. Uh, the subject matter is not the type that's going to bring you into conflict because sometimes when we share our opinions, our opinions can create uh, almost immediate reactions from people and conflict. How many of you know there are certain subjects, you voice your opinion, you're just liable to get a fiery reaction back. How, how many know that that is true? Yeah. How many know people... <laughs> Uh, don't, don't look at anybody, but how many know people, <laughs> they just love to give their opinion. In fact, they do say anything <laughs> to anyone at any time. You get almost unfiltered uh, opinions from them. And uh, if you know people like that, you also know that, frankly, they're uncomfortable to be around. You know, you can be having a very pleasant conversation, very pleasant day, and then all of a sudden they voice one of those big bad opinions and everybody is just cringing or, or feeling fear that conflict is going to evolve. And I want to say something personal because although we're all laughing, truth be told, I bet there's more than one of us in here that you are that person. And I want you to take one moment to seriously reflect. If you are that person that you just say anything and you give your opinion, whether it's asked for or not, I can tell you one thing about you. You're an unhappy person deep inside. You're a lonely person deep inside. You're a person that's never been able to sustain a relationship for long. And maybe the whole message for you today is that a loving God is kind of pleading with you. You don't need to do this. You don't need to voice your opinion about everything all the time with everyone. Okay. So anyway, put it back in perspective. Say anything is a game that urges us to be intentionally transparent with one another. We're going to give our opinion. That's kind of being a risk, but it's safe. You're going to give a, a safe opinion. You know, it's like if you had a pet monkey and you could train it to do one thing, what would be the coolest thing in the world to train your pet monkey to do? That, it's those kind of questions like that. So it's intentionally safe. 
but you are sharing your opinion. Now, every human being that you and I ever meet is truly this, an iceberg. Now, I don't know what you're thinking or what connotation you put to it, but I'm telling you, you are an iceberg, you're an iceberg, you're an iceberg, you're an iceberg, and I'm an iceberg. I'm also a Goldenberg. I'm a Goldenberg and I'm an iceberg. <laughs> but here's the rest of that picture. You see, that's why I say we're all icebergs. You are a complex, you are a very, very complex being. And most of you is below the surface. Most of you is hidden away. Most of you I don't know and other people don't know. Very few know the below the surface, particularly the deep below the surface, you are the deep below the surface, me. And so anytime we meet a human being, we, we must understand that what we're getting is surface stuff, safe stuff. That's not wrong. There are those people that as soon as you meet them, they want to show you the bottom of the iceberg. That's usually not wise or healthy, okay? Um, but nevertheless, we're, we're complicated. So trying to build a relationship with one another, it, it takes time. It, it, it takes creating kind of a comfortable, safe environment, and then it takes intentional sharing or transparency. So God has primarily, uh, or, or God primarily builds his relationship with us through the use of words. I said that last week. He speaks to us through words. He gives us the ability to understand them. He reveals his, his desires, his plans, his purposes, so that we can relate back to him to choose to trust him and follow him or not. And so when it comes to you and I building relationships, which God intends us to do in this life, to learn how to do, to learn how to love, learn how to love at a lot of different levels, we have to learn about communication. So here, here's something that's pretty commonly known. There, there's these various levels of communication. And so most of us know that, you know, that level number one, near the top of the iceberg, you know, that's cliches and superficiality. You know, you meet the person and you say, hey, how you doing? How's it going? You don't really expect them to tell you how it's going. You just expect them to say, oh, it's pretty good. That's pretty much it. Second level, sharing information. It might be something like, you know, today uh, on wheat bread, I'm going to eat a sandwich, and it has, um, you know, cheese on it and some ham on it and some spicy uh, sweet mustard. And, and that's actually what I'm going to eat today. That is, I just told you. So I shared information. What is that noise? We keep hearing all kinds of things. Oh, it's on the roof. Ice on the roof. That makes perfect sense. Okay, we can all relax. <laughs> but that's not very threatening or informative. You know, you know something, but you don't know much. Third level, now it starts to change. I'm going to share ideas and opinions with you, which is kind of the, the thrust of that game, say anything. Um, ideas, I might say something like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the way we do our work and the processes and so forth, and I think I have an idea that we could streamline all the processes and make the company more profitable. Now, that's risky. You know, you may threaten somebody's job by saying that. Uh, you may have pushback. Or your opinion. Your opinion might be something like, you know, I believe that the Washington Redskins is the greatest franchise in the history of football. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't. I'm just, it's just, it's an opinion. I'm giving you an example. Now, actually, I have been a Redskin fan since 1956. Um, born in 1950, first grade, picked up the football bug, you know. But I don't think they're the greatest franchise. But that would be an opinion. You might say, oh, no, 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 I think the Green Bay Packers are the greatest franchise. Yeah, it's the same thing they did in first service. <laughs> uh, so that's an opinion. You may like it. You may reject it. You may like me. <laughs> you may not like me after you hear my opinion. That's a little more risky, but you're, you're getting closer to knowing something about me. Fourth level. 
shared values and feelings. This is what really matters to me. I'm going to tell you the thing that matters the most to me in life. Now, now I'm giving you a glimpse of who I really am. My feelings. This is the level we have the hardest time with. You know, let's just bear, bear with me for a minute. We're all sitting here today. You know, we have our game face on. And um, we're out to ask you guys, hey, guys, you know, how you doing today? You know, oh, we're doing great today, Gritty. Okay, but now let's just say we suddenly had a little card where we wrote down, what's my emotional state most days? <laughs> this didn't happen in the first service. <laughs> All the hot air is melting the ice on the roof. <laughs> you know what would go on those cards? The same, we're all here smiling, having a good time, appropriately so. But we write, write, we'd see things like this on this card. I feel so scared every day of my life. I so wish I could feel what it is to be loved. I never do. We, we, we'd read, I feel on the edge of depression every day. We'd read things like, I have so much anger. I, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to deal with things. I have so much built-up anger and resentment. We, if we started sharing emotions, I feel so insecure, I feel so inadequate, all these kinds of things, very different. And we're scared for the most part to share those things. And let me, let me balance this. We should be to a degree. These are not, those deeper level things are not to be shared indiscriminately with everyone all the time. Um, so there has to be a balanced approach to this, and we're, we're going to unpack this a bit more as we go. So levels of communication help us to develop levels of relationship. In this life, we are not going to have the deepest levels of relationship with everybody. That is an impossibility. But we can all have deep relationships with at least one or two or maybe a little more than that. And we should because there's parts of us that won't grow and mature and learn how to love God's way unless we have these kind of vulnerable relationships with at least a few in our life. All right. Well, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in just a minute where um, Jesus is asked to give his opinion. And I'm just going to give you a little trivia here thing about questions that were asked of Jesus during his ministry. We find that there were actually 115 questions asked of him. Two he did not answer. He refused to answer. But he did answer 113 questions. Now, here's the cool thing. Of the 113 questions, he himself asked 52 of them. In other words, he would ask a question to a group of people or, or to his disciples because he knew they started needing to think about something they were not thinking about. He knew they needed to start caring about something they were not caring about. So he would ask a question to get them focused on what it is, but then he himself would answer it. And, and, and I think a lot of good teachers do this. You ask a question to stimulate and focus the thought, and then you know what you're going to answer, but you want ice on the roof pounding in the middle of your message. That's important to have. <laughs> 61 out of the 113 other people ask, and, and interestingly enough, the disciples only asked 25. I mean, I'd have been there, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> I, I would have had a bunch of questions. The first one would have been, Lord, you know these people have been asking me for 40 years. What about the dinosaurs? What about the dinosaurs? <laughs> I would have asked that one right off the bat, you know. <laughs> don't ask me because I don't know. You'll just be disappointed. <laughs> so we're going to look at a portion of Scripture uh, just to kind of get us uh, launched on this idea 
So go to Matthew chapter 22. That'll be page 1119 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. 1119. And Matthew 22, we're going to look at very quickly at verse 15 through 22 just to give an example. So this is toward the end of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. Uh, the religious leaders had now made up their mind. They were going to destroy Jesus any way that they could. They were so jealous of him taking the attention away from them. So in chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees, the Pharisees were kind of the conservative religious leaders of the day. They, they had utterly rejected Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. And of course, they were utterly wrong. Then the Pharisees went out and they planned together to entrap him with his own words. Notice that there was no sincerity to their question that they were about to ask. They sent to him their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So when they say, what do you think? They're saying, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, you need a little historical context to understand what a loaded, trap question that was. The Romans ruled over the known world of that day, including Israel and Jerusalem. And they did collect tax. And Caesar's picture was on the coins of the day. So if Jesus says, no, we're Jews, we're the people of God, we don't have to pay taxes to Caesar then these Pharisees can go running to Pilate and some of the Roman authorities and saying, hey, this guy's leading a rebellion. He's telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar. The Romans would have grabbed him quick and crucified him. Ultimately, he was crucified. So he can't answer that way. At the same time, if he says pay taxes to Caesar, he knows that the popular notion of the Jews of that day about the Messiah that that would disappoint them because the popular notion of what the, what the Christ, what the Messiah was going to do in those days was he was going to show up and he was going to throw off the rule of the Romans and make Israel the chief of the nations and Jerusalem the capital of the world. So if Jesus answers and says, pay the tax, he's going to lose the popularity of the Jewish following. If he says, don't pay the tax, the Romans are going to come and arrest him and kill him. So it looks like he's cornered. It looks like he's trapped. But here's the problem. The Pharisees thought that Jesus really cared about his popularity, and he didn't. Don't get me wrong. Jesus came with a firm mission in mind. He wanted to reconcile every single human being that he could back to God. Human beings had broken trust with God way back in the Garden of Eden. Human beings were fearful of God, didn't trust God, were hesitant about being close to God, felt uncomfortable with an almighty being whose laws we had more or less, usually more broken. And so Jesus wanted to bring human beings back to the place where they could feel safe with God again, where they really trusted him but he didn't care about being popular. And the Pharisees thought they had him trapped, but he was not trapped at all. So let's look at his answer. <laughs> this is going to be an exciting service with uh, the bombs dropping overhead. It's just a little rehearsal for the future probably. Um, <laughs> verse 18. But Jesus realized their evil intentions. See, not, not all questions, not all asking for opinions is sincere. And he said, hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought to him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose image is this? 
And whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Meaning we're made in the image of God. He's telling them, give yourself to God, which they had not done, or they would have recognized Jesus as the true Savior of the world. And it results with this. Now, when they heard this, they were stunned and they left him and they went away. He was not courting their popularity. You don't call somebody a hypocrite if you're courting their popularity, nor did he care about the people's popularity. But he did desperately care about reaching those that are reachable. And so it's been all through right down to this day. So here's an example of Jesus giving his opinion. And you notice that he was so aware of the context. Now, I want to say something. When we're talking about practice transparency, and that's where we're going, I'm going to urge you to participate in intentional transparency in a relationally safe context. That's big. So intentional transparency is a goal to building deeper relationships, but it should only be done in a safe context. Jesus is always aware of the context. Who is asking? Why were they asking? Who's going to benefit from this? Is this going to honor God? Is this going to bless people? Is this going to cause confusion or, or alleviate confusion? All those kind of things. And we need to ask those kinds of questions too. Just indiscriminate sharing, indiscriminate transparency is not wise. It's not good. It doesn't necessarily build or bless or cause deeper relationships. So Jesus gives us a good model of, of what kind of relationships, what kind of intentional transparency we should be willing to participate in. In John chapter 13, and by the way, this is the last night Jesus is with his disciples. He knows he's, he's about 12 hours or so away from going to the cross. He's trying to prepare them for that. And that night he says to them, after being with them for three and a half years, he says, I give you a new commandment to Love one another. Now, if it just stopped right there, we'd say, uh, okay, I kind of know what that means. I think I know what that means, love one another. Uh, I mean, I know it doesn't mean to be cruel or hurtful to one another, but it's not too clear. So then he cl clarifies it. I give you a new commandment to love one another just as I have, what does it say? Now, that changes everything. They know exactly how Jesus has treated them for three and a half years. They know what kind of loving community he has built amongst them. And by the way, we have a hard time today understanding this business of loving other people, loving one another, because we mistake unconditional love. How many, I mean, let me just say this. How many of you have heard that God is, is unconditionally loving? He loves us unconditionally. How many, how many have heard that before? Yeah, and that's true. But we mistake unconditional love with unconditional support. Okay? We have the idea, the notion today that if I'm really your friend, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever dream you want to pursue, whatever action you want to take, if I'm really your friend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unconditionally support you. And that's not love. Jesus frequently corrected his disciples. At times, he outright rebuked them. He rebuked Peter to the point he said, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're suggesting things that are not of God at all. It was a high feedback relational community. There was a lot of correction in it. Love does not mean a lack of correction. But it does mean that when the correction is done, the person is assured that they're still loved, they're still respected, they haven't lost credibility. Uh, you know, nothing has changed relationally other than they needed a change in ideas. I mean, when you think about it, who, who, who's the, the greatest TV family of all time? How, how many you got an idea? We're playing Say Anything now. Greatest TV family, just say something out. The Brady Bunch, right? How many said the Brady Bunch? 
Lucy, Ricky, I don't know. Wait, wait, um, Ward, Ward and June Cleaver, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Even the Brady Bunch is beyond some of you. <laughs> but you know, imagine Greg Brady coming to Mike, the, the best dad in the world, right? <laughs> it's so funny, you that know the whole story behind the scenes. But the TV dad, Mike, and, and so Greg sits down, he says, Dad, I have a problem. Well, son, you know I'm always available for you to have a talk with. Tell me what it is, Greg. Well, all my friends, Dad, they want me to drink with them and do heroin, and I'm an outcast. Nobody likes me because I never have drank with them and done heroin yet. And Dad, I just need to know that you're going to be okay with this. Well, Greg, you know your mother and I love you unconditionally. Of course, son, we support you in whatever you need to do. <laughs> I mean, really, would that be realistic? No. I mean, even Mr. Brady would probably raise an eyebrow on that one, right? <laughs> so, love like I loved you, it doesn't mean that it's this squishy, wishy-washy love that allows somebody to go off the cliff with their life without saying, whoa, stop. You're going to destroy yourself and probably a bunch of others too. But it is a love that says, man, you belong, and I believe in you, and I believe the best for you, and, and I'm with you. And so you can share with me safely, and I'm not going to humiliate you. Jesus never humiliated his disciples when they were off course. So that's all part of this. It helps us to get a picture of what kind of loving community he wants. So participating in intentional transparency, but in a relationally safe context. Now, the safety part is important, too. Because if we are transparent indiscriminately with people, and they are not mature enough to receive what we share, it literally, we might be attempting to give ourselves to them vulnerably, but we might be hurting them because they are not mature enough to really take this in. How many of you got kids? Let me see your hands. Okay, we, we, we all know this one then. When, uh, when your kids are a certain age and they start asking you, maybe they're getting close to teenager, and they start asking you, well, well uh, mom, dad, uh, did, did, you, did you do these kind of things when you were a teenager? What do you do? You know, and they're asking for things that you know you don't want them to do that are destructive things. Well, if you're a smart, crafty parent, you change the subject. <laughs> because if you tell them, yeah, man, I got high when I was a kid. We partied like crazy. I did some crazy things. <laughs> Lucky to be alive, you know. Well, what have you just done? Your kid is not mature enough to take that information in. You have given that kid a pass, a free pass to go party like crazy and do dangerous, dumb things. So indiscriminate sharing is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about intentionally transparent, but with caution. I'm going to share what I think you can handle, what I think is going to bless you, what I think is necessary, what's good for God, what's going to honor him, what's going to build others up. And you're going to be safe if you choose to share, to be transparent with me. And if you don't choose to be transparent with me, you will never feel any pressure. You see, that, that's the kind of community. L listen, it's cults. It's weird cults that push people and pressure people to share on the most vulnerable levels, you know, because they want to control people. Churches should never be such places. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that the deepest levels of relational uh, closeness should occur in the context of local churches, not with everybody. That's an impossibility, but with some. But it should never be pressured. But there should be the, the uh, emphasis to let's, let's intentionally try to be transparent, but in a safe 
in a safe context. Now, we have a great example of this from uh, the idea that since Jesus sacrificed his body on the cross and ascended back to heaven, it says that now we are his body. Uh, how many of you have ever heard the, the term that the church is also called the body of Christ? How many have ever heard that term at all? Okay. And sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, it's just kind of like a little name. But we're not really thinking what it means. It, it's talking about a very systemic kind of a community. It's a community that functions in a certain way. So look at these verses from the New Testament. It's saying to those that have made a decision, and, and, and ask yourself this, by the way, before I go on. Have you made a decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower? Okay, because that's how one becomes a Christian. We don't, we don't face God hoping our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. No, 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 no. God freely forgives us of everything, but he waits until we choose to put our trust in Christ and become his follower. When we do that, he gives us eternal life. We're sure of heaven and his kingdom as though we've been there 10,000 years. But it's a good thing to ask ourselves, have I done that? Am I a follower of Christ? Have I put my faith in Christ and because of that am I his follower now? If not, you can do that today. You can do it before the service ends. Everybody's following somebody. I'm going to tell you, you'll never meet somebody that's not following somebody. Most of us are following ourselves. But, you know, I didn't create the universe and I didn't die for you, so you're much better off to follow Jesus than to follow me or yourself. Okay, so he's writing, writing to followers of Christ, those whose sins are forgiven and those who have eternal life. And here's what he says to him. He says, now you, you Christians, you followers of Christ, are Christ's what? Body. He gave his body up on the cross. Remember, send it back to heaven. But now we're his hands, we're his feet, we're his eyes. And each of you is a, what is the word? Member. Through the years, you know, I've done this stuff for a lot of years now. And uh, every so often somebody will come to me and say, Randy, the New Testament doesn't teach church membership. It's nowhere to be found, they'll tell me <laughs> occasionally. And I'll say, really? I think it does. I think it is there. It's just that it's not the kind of membership that you're thinking of. How many of you are members in like a club, a gym or something like that? Let me see here. I know my gym guys are over here. I saw, saw them. <laughs> uh, now, we're members of the gym. They don't really care if we come or not, do they? It's no big deal. In fact, they just assume we didn't come. They'd have more room. They could get more members in there and make more money. But, but people like us that come a lot, we, we kind of, we, we get the money's worth, so to speak. But when you join a club, they don't care if you come. If you come, you come, you come. People think of church membership like that. That is the wrong image of membership. For some of you, this is going to be mind-blowing, what, what I'm about to show you. For others of you, say, oh, Randy, I've known that for 25 years. But, but here we go. Let's go back to that passage. Now you are Christ's body, hands, feet, eyes. He's going to work through us. Each of you is a member. Membership, church membership means that I am now a dedicated part of the movement of God in a particular gathering of people. How many of you, how many of you, Feed yourself at least once a day. Can I see your hands? Okay. So you take care of yourself. You think about yourself. How many of you look into a mirror at least once a day? See your hands? See, you care about yourself. How many of you, if you have a sore spot or something like that, you try to avoid that sore spot being hit and hurt again? Can I see your hands? Yeah, we got a sane crowd. Everybody here is sane? That's good. You see, you think about your body and you care about your body and you protect your body every single day of your life. That's church membership. I think about the gathering here every day. I care about the gathering here every day. I care about all that happens every day. 
It doesn't mean that I'm so fixated that I cannot think of anything else, but I'm just trying to show you that's church membership. We develop a membership here that, that's more biblical. We call it participating membership. We say that unless a person is, is committed to five principles, irreducible minimums, that they're really not participating. Uh, maybe some of you can take our membership class sometime and you can see what we mean. But membership is taught, but it's talking about something organic and something powerful. It's talking about deep, continuous devotion to a community of people that God is working in and God is working through. Let's go back to that passage. I'll go fast now. So he says, so we who are many are one body in Christ. Individually, we are members who belong to who? One another. You belong to me and I belong to you. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever stumped your toe in the middle of the night? You know, you're walking in the dark and bang, you hit your toe. Yeah. All right. This is a trick question. Think it through. Does just your toe hurt or do you hurt? Right? Does just your toe feel pain or do you feel pain? You feel pain. Your body, each part, you belong to one another. Let's go back to it. Individually, we are members who belong to one another so that there may be no division in the body, but the members, here it is again, members, members, membership may have the mutual concern for one another. For no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and he does what to it? Takes care of it. That's church membership. We care for what's happening here. We care for the work of God. We care for one another. Feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church his assembly, for we are members of his what? Anything that God's going to do on this earth right now, he's going to do it through you and you and you and you and me and us as we combine together as his hands and his feet and his heartbeat and his eyes and his mouth. He's going to do it in us and he's going to do it through us. We're the body of Christ. And that means we not have to have transparency. Your body has great transparency amongst the members. Your, your stomach, your stomach can't even talk, has no mouth, can't talk. How many of you are a little hungry right now? Just the fact that I mentioned that, okay? So let me tell you how the transparency works. So your stomach, who can't even talk, who, who is invisible, you can't even see your stomach, it's hidden under stuff, but your stomach's going to give off signals. I'm hungry. So what's going to happen? Your legs are going to go into motion. <laughs> your arms are moving. You're heading for that fridge, or you're headed for that, that restaurant, and you're going you're gonna to get to, maybe if it's a fridge, you're going to get the bread, and you're going to make the sandwich, and you're going to put it. And then your teeth, that get no gratification at this. Your teeth are going to munch it all up, going to crunch it all up and, and swallow it down. Teeth don't get any gratification at all, but they're just team members. They're going along with the ride. And all this because your stomach wants something. The body has this connectedness, this, this closeness. Now, here's the key. That's the kind of relationships God wants to have occurring in a local church. They're going to be at all different levels. You know what, my, my, my fingers are much closer to my hand than they are to my eye, but they're still connected. So we're all connected, but we're going to have different levels of, of closeness, but we all should be connected at least to one or two uh, other members of the body of Christ. All right. Uh, the, to show you how critical this is to personal development and health, a um, great example by a guy, his name is Dr. Dixon, Chapanda, he's a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe, and he found that, that he had a hard time working with the population in Zimbabwe because there was a great stigma attached to mental illness or emotional illness, and so nobody would come for treatment. So he came up with this idea. Chapanda figured out that while people were hesitant to head to a mental clinic and speak with a medical professional about their mental health, 
They were generally willing to sit on a park bench and share their worries with someone within their own community. And here's what he came up with, this concept. He called it the friendship bench. According to a study that tracked 573 patients with anxiety or depression for a six-month period, only 13% of those who participated in the friendship bench program still had the symptoms of depression. This is amazing. Only 13%. L listen, truth be told, some of us in here struggle with depression. It's just reality. Other truth be told, most of us could overcome those struggles with depression by simply having healthy connectivity with other safe people in the body of Christ. I'm not saying that all depression is. Some of it's you know, clinical, it's biomedical and all that kind of thing. Uh, some of it really needs professional treatment, but most would be alleviated by just sympathetic connection, somebody listening, somebody talking, somebody encouraging you, somebody believing in you, somebody clarifying your perspective. It can mean a lot. Man, encouragement is such a powerful thing. When you're ready to give up on something or make a bad decision, somebody speaking to you that cares, it can make a life-changing difference. And so here this guy is experiencing just the power of uh, intentional transparency in a relationally safe context. And it brings the experience of authentic community and the inner health that inevitably results from that. We, we all want to be connected. Deep inside, we all want to be in a community where we're liked, we're known, we're loved, we're believed in, we're accepted. People smile when we come around. That's what we all want. We want to live in a world like that. We were made for a world like that. But right now, it's not complete. Until Christ returns, we're not going to have it in totality. But we're to start experiencing it and exhibiting it and offering it to others right now. So we can experience authentic community and, inner, and the inner health that it brings. Here's another passage from Ephesians 4. Apostle Paul talking to followers of Christ again, he says, but, but practicing the truth in love, as we learn God's truth and put it into practice, motivated by love, we will in all things grow up into a mature person. But what's a mature person look like? How, how do we know what's a mature person? A mature person attaining to the measure of what? You tell me. Christ's full what? Stature. Randy, are you trying to tell me I can be as perfect as Jesus? You're, you're talking crazy. Nobody can be perfect like Jesus. Well, what does it say? It says, when you're mature, you attain to the measure of Christ's full stature. Now, I'm not saying that we reach that in this life, but I am saying this. I have and you have a tremendous potential for change, a tremendous potential to grow. Don't you dare tell yourself or let anybody tell you, oh, this is just my heritage. Oh, I was just so beaten and scarred and bruised because of my background and my history. Oh, I just got this crazy Italian blood running through me or whatever it is. I just can't change. That's just me. Don't ever lie to yourself like that. Don't ever lie to each other like that. Truth be told, if you're a Christ follower, you have almost unlimited potential to change and to grow, and you can become somebody so beautiful. You can become very Christ-like in this life if you want to. That's what that verse says. But it happens in the context of healthy community where people are being intentionally transparent, but they're safe. You're never pressured to go beyond what you're comfortable with, but you're, you're in an environment that allows you more and more to be and show who you really are without any fear of rejection or condemnation or reprisal. The passage goes on. So this all happens as each one does its part. The body, remember we know we're the body of Christ. That's where the church is. It grows in love as each part 
practices this, this particular way of walking and living. There's one last portion of scripture or, or a couple I want to share with you. Um, there's, there was a docu- documentary done, and it's called The Mask You Live In. I'm just curious. Some of you might have seen it. The Mask You Live In. Anybody perhaps seen it? it was, I think it was made in 2015. Uh, it's sort of focused on teenagers in high school in particular and, and, and male teenagers in particular. And in this one portion of this study, this documentary, they, uh, they went to this one high school, kind of a tough high school, and so they, they asked these boys to write on a sheet of paper on one side, what is your image? And so they all wrote down what their image is. Now, they knew this was anonymous. They were going to turn these in, but they knew it was anonymous, so they wrote down what their image is. Then the teacher said, now I want you to flip the paper over and write on the other side how it feels inside to be you, what you feel like. And they wrote that down. Then they crumpled them up and they passed them in. Dr. Philip Zimbardo gave the results uh, from this documentary, and here they are. What they said was all the same. On the outside, what's my image? I'm tough. I'm fearless. I'll kick your, and you know what that means. (laughs) On the inside, this is the flip side of the paper, I'm lonely. I'm sad. Got no friends. Each boy was stunned that the others, get this part, felt the same way. You, You see, when people start being intentionally transparent and we hear that we're not really so different, that we're all struggling with fear and insecurity and worries of inadequacy and wondering if we're ever going to be loved or lovable or safe or secure with anybody anytime, it, it sort of draws us together. It, it sort of starts making us feel sympathetic towards one another. Bonds are built. And frankly, it's, it's fascinating. We start actually getting healthier. It's not that we're glad that everybody else is as troubled as we are, but it just makes something inside of us feel not so different and apart, and we start drawing closer to one another. It, it's a healing thing when we experience authentic community, and it brings inner health to us. One of the reasons that we still have so much negativity attached to us, even after we're followers of Christ, we have to be realistic. There's a lot of things we have to put off after trusting Christ, but it's because we're still living with that old disconnect. When we were disconnected from God, we didn't know who we were, why we were here, how to live, what the meaning of life was, what's the purpose. We didn't know where we were going after death. We didn't know that we were loved by anybody for sure. We didn't know what our value was. But when a person trusts Christ and comes back to their creator, and starts to really experience his love, all of a sudden, my emptiness inside, I'm full. I know that at least he loves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So now I can offer something to someone else. It, It starts to heal me and give me something to give to others. And a lot of these old negative patterns were based on the fact that that I felt empty, I felt disconnected, I felt unloved. Look at this verse from Ephesians again. It says, you must put away All bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and slanderous talk. Indeed, indeed, all malice, that means ill will toward people. We have the bitterness, the anger, the wrath, the quarreling, and slanderous talk because we lived so long disconnected from God and we had to take care of ourselves, man. It's like, I don't know how long I'm going to be alive. I got to take care of myself, keep myself alive, and I got to get as much pleasure as I can because there's nothing else to live for than that. And that makes us like this. We get bitter and angry and wrathful and quarreling. But once we know that God loves us and we are eternal beings headed for an eternally wonderful future, then we can start doing these other things. Instead, be kind to one another. We're able to do that when we know we're loved by Christ. Compassionate to one another, feeling about other people's feelings, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. We're we're able to do that when we enter into healing, 
authentic community. One last verse from Galatians, it says that the Spirit of God starts to be able to develop these traits in us as we start connecting with each other in a safe way. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We become more loving. We have more joy. We have more peace. We become more patient. We become kinder people. We do good things. We become more faithful, consistent people. We become more gentle people. We have more self-control. Our habits don't rule us. Addictions, are dry. they fall off because we have a new wholeness inside of us. So participate in intentional transparency in a relationally safe context so that we can experience authentic community and the inner health that it brings. I'm going to close one story. A guy named John Ortberg, great Christian communicator. I've uh, spoken about him a lot of times. He tells about an episode in his life. Now, now, mind you, this is not something we should pursue with everyone all the time. So listen carefully. I'm, I'm just going to read it to you, and it'll make sense. Uh, Pastor and author John Ortberg, he writes, of the power of secret or, or, or close friendships where there's no secrets. He says, one of the most important moments in my spiritual life was when I sat down with a long-time friend. Remember that part, long-time friend, not a new acquaintance. And he said to him, I don't want to have any secrets anymore. And John Ortberg says, I told him everything that I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies, my cowardice, how I hurt my wife with my anger, I told him about my history with money. I told him about my history with sex. I told him about deceit and regrets that keep me up at night. I felt vulnerable because I was afraid that I was going to lose the connection with him. Much to my surprise, he didn't even look away. And Ortberg says, I'll never forget his next words. Because once you share something that, that on that intimate level, the person might change their mind about you forever. They might have thought highly of you, but now they're going to think poorly of you. They might have loved you before. They might reject you now. That's the reality. He says, I'll never forget his next words, John said. He said, John, I, I've never loved you more than I love you right now. The very truth about me that I thought would drive him away became a bond that drew us closer together. He then went on to speak with me about the secrets he had been carrying. And he, uh, excuse me. <laughs> If, if, if I keep part of my life, see, okay, he's coming to a conclusion. I'm sorry, I got myself lost there. So he started sharing his, his secrets with him. And then John Ortberg concludes this. He says, if I keep part of my life secret from you, you may tell me you love me, but inside I think that you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am known by you. Think of the iceberg again. If we're only revealing you know, one-third of ourselves, we're only going to feel one-third loved. If we show the whole iceberg, we can feel completely loved by someone. But they also could reject us. So notice, this is not the level with everyone, but it is a desirable level. And it's a level that God wants us to have at least with one or two in this life. So when we close and thinking of this whole thing of say anything, it's, it's about you and I taking some intentional risks to say, I'm going to try to connect with other followers of Christ, and I'm going to try to be intentionally transparent, but I'm going to do so in safe ways. I'm not going to share more than I should. I'm not going to try to put pressure on them, but I'm going to do that. I, I think all of us can say today, yeah, I, I can be more intentional about that. Second part is, I think, even more critical, that we make sure, starting today, that we are safe people. 
that if people share themselves with us, that we become somewhat unshockable people, that, that we still love them. And I'm not saying that we may not have to correct them or, or urge them not to do destructive things, but, but that we make sure we're safe and that we won't share the information where it shouldn't be shared and that sort of thing. And then if anybody's here today and you've never um, made yourself vulnerable to your creator, he's made himself vulnerable to you. Christ died on the cross to show us that we can trust him and that we were made by him and for him. If you've never made a decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower, um, this is your opportunity. Every Sunday we usually give an opportunity for you to do that. So whatever the Spirit of God is kind of tugging on your heart to do, I, I hope you'll follow through with that urging. Let's pray. Father, we pray that... Um, the kind of unity, the kind of love, the kind of relational transparency that you desire for us to experience and have and offer to others, that your spirit will stir us, give us courage to do those things. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.